2: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 144th edition of the program. Today is May 24th. I think. But before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, and that includes Ellison Capers, J. D. Hess, Mr. Malloy, Patrick Cheek, Rupode, The Juice Media, and Tyler Diaz. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support us either through PayPal or Patreon, you could visit humanistreport.com support. Or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, Bernie Sanders explains why conservative Democrats are a huge problem for the Democratic Party. And speaking of conservative Democrats, Hillary Clinton continues to prove that she represents everything wrong with the Democratic Party. Also on this episode, Chuck Todd makes up an absurd lie about Bernie Sanders' relationship with the NRA. And he does this to Bernie Sanders' face. We'll talk about that. Also, Bill Maher and Barry Weiss, alleged liberals, defend Israel's massacre of Palestinians. And Ajit Pai is caught up in yet another corruption scandal, this time involving AT&T and Donald Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen. Mike Pence and John Bolton now appear to be actively trying to tank peace talks with North Korea. I'll tell you specifically what they're doing. And while people within Trump's administration are trying to kill diplomacy, Trump himself is trying to kill the planet by cutting off NASA's carbon monitoring program, which is an important tool for scientists aiming to better understand climate change. So, that's all we got for this episode. Not too long of an episode, but hopefully we'll make up for it next week uh, with a guest and just a lot more. So, um, nonetheless, even if it's a shorter show, I hope you guys enjoy it. Last week, it became clear that the prospect of peace between the United States and North Korea was in jeopardy once Kim Jong-un threatened to cancel his upcoming meeting with President Trump in protest of joint military exercises that were conducted between the United States and South Korea. And this week, peace between the United States and North Korea seems even more unlikely because individuals within Donald Trump's administration, like Mike Pence and John Bolton, seem to now be actively trying to undermine peace talks in a pretty blatant way. And they're doing this by constantly issuing implicit threats to North Korea. Now, how? Well, they're bringing up The Libyan model. Now, if you truly want to secure peace with North Korea, you never ever want to mention the Libyan model. In fact, you want to pretend like Libya never existed. Because what happened in Libya? Well, after Libya's leader, Muammar Gaddafi, gave up his nuclear weapons just eight years later, guess what we did? We forced him out of power where he was then captured and killed thereafter. So the fact that we lied to another dictator who gave up nuclear weapons... That might dissuade Kim Jong-un from wanting to come to the table because he knows that in giving up his nuclear weapons, he no longer has a deterrent. He, He no longer has any leverage. He has nothing to stop U.S. aggression. We could just invade him whenever we want to. So, We should be trying to do everything in our power to convince him that this isn't going to be another situation like Libya. We're not going to lie to him if he gives up his nuclear weapons and then invade him eight years later. We should be doing everything to make sure he knows that we are negotiating in good faith here. However, Mike Pence was on Fox News and he decided to contradict that. He decided to imply that, well, maybe the Libya model might be applicable in North Korea,
3: we really, we really hope that Kim Jong Un will, will uh, seize the opportunity to dismantle his nuclear weapons program, and, and, and do so by peaceable means. You know, there was some talk about the Libyan model right. last week, and um, you know, as the president made clear, um, you know, this uh, this will only end like the Libyan model ended if Kim Jong Un doesn't make a deal. Some people saw that as a threat. Well, I I think it's more of a fact. President Trump made it clear the United States of America, under his leadership, is not going to tolerate the regime in North Korea possessing nuclear weapons and ballistic
2: missiles that threaten the United States and our allies. That right there is not something you ever want to say if you are genuinely pursuing peace, if you're a good faith actor, if you truly want The United States and North Korea to come up with some type of agreement where peace is an option? You don't say something like that. And to give you some context, when he referenced talks of the Libyan model last week, he was actually talking about idiot comments made by John Bolton, Donald Trump's current national security advisor. And as Julia Manchester of The Hill reports, Pence's remarks come after National Security Advisor John Bolton said on Sunday that the United States was looking at using the Libya model as a way of getting Pyongyang to surrender its nuclear weapons. Now, John Bolton made that comment after Kim Jong-un threatened to cancel the meeting with Donald Trump. So the situation was tense, and here this idiot John Bolton opens his big mouth and says, well, you know what? If Kim Jong-un doesn't want to come to the table, maybe we should pursue the Libya model. You don't say that when he's already thinking of backing out. You do what you can to use diplomacy to lure him back in and bring him to the table. But John Bolton doesn't want that because if... North Korea actually cooperates with us, then that means we can't invade them. That means that regime change will no longer be an option. And what makes the situation even more interesting is that Donald Trump himself is still seemingly committed to peace talks because quote, President Trump said on Monday that the US would offer protections to Kim if he agreed to give up his nuclear weapons, adding he was not considering the Libyan model, appearing to contradict Bolton. The Libyan model isn't a model that we have at all. When we are thinking of North Korea, Trump said, "In Libya, we decimated that country. That country was decimated. There was no deal to keep President Muammar Gaddafi. The Libyan model that was mentioned was a much different deal." So surprisingly, Donald Trump is saying the right thing in this situation. He is trying to convey to Kim Jong Un this isn't another Libyan situation. We're trying to make sure that we actually get peace and our deal will include a provision to protect you so we can't invade you once you relinquish the power and leverage that you have. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter what Donald Trump wants because you have saboteurs in his administration like Mike Pence and John Bolton who are trying to actively tank peace talks, with the US and North Korea. That's apparent now because after John Bolton opened his big mouth when the prospect of peace was in jeopardy, Donald Trump came along and tried to clean up the mess that John Bolton made. And what does Mike Pence do? He opens his big mouth on Fox News and contradicts what Trump says after Trump contradicted what Bolton says. And Pence says, you know what, actually the Libyan model might be what we should pursue. And he even cited Donald Trump So he tried to legitimize himself, saying, no, this is coming directly from the president. We're going to be tough on you. But the president just said a couple of days ago that they're not pursuing the Libya model and that the deal that was struck with Libya did not include a provision to protect Muammar Gaddafi, whereas this deal with Kim Jong-un would include a provision to protect him, which is a necessary provision because why would he negotiate if he thinks that you're going to overthrow him once he gives up his nuclear weapons? Donald Trump is still committed to peace, seemingly But people in his administration are trying to sabotage that from happening. How are members of Donald Trump's support base not seeing this and not calling out? Why are progressives having to come out and condemn people within Donald Trump's administration who are undermining Donald Trump when he's trying to do perhaps the one good thing he's ever even tried to do since he's been president? This is absolutely insane. How is the mainstream media not talking about how the vice president and national security advisor are actively trying to tank peace talks between the US and North Korea? They're now undermining Donald Trump because they want war with Kim Jong-un and North Korea. They will stop at nothing. They don't care if they have to undermine Donald Trump. They are bloodthirsty warmongers and they will never not be bloodthirsty warmongers. So it's very clear that... If talks between the U.S. and North Korea fall through and this meeting is canceled for whatever reason and we aren't able to secure a peace deal, we'll know who to blame specifically, John Bolton and Mike Pence. But at the same time, Donald Trump is still partially culpable because if you truly care about peace and if diplomacy is a goal for you, you don't appoint people like John Bolton to be your national security advisor. That makes no sense whatsoever. Why would you choose the biggest warmonger in the country? Why would you select Mike Pompeo as your Secretary of State if you truly cared about peace? You knew that there was a possibility that these individuals would try to undermine you. But he chose them anyway. So Donald Trump, even if he may be acting in good faith here with regards to North Korea, he still is to blame. Because if you really want peace... If you want that Nobel Peace Prize, Donald Trump, then you can't surround yourself with bloodthirsty warmongers who are going to actively undermine anything you do to try to secure peace. So understand that this is what's happening. Mike Pence and John Bolton don't want peace because they want an invasion and they're trying to tank peace talks with North Korea. It's sickening. According to climate scientists, we passed the climate change tipping point years ago. With how much CO2 we've added to the atmosphere at now 410 parts per million, we have done irreparable damage to our planet, and now, because of the damage we've caused, Earth just entered its 400th Straight warmer than average month, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So now we've reached a point where we can't just talk about climate change mitigation, but adaptation has to be part of the broader conversation because we ruined the planet. And now we have to figure out how our species is going to live with the damage that we've caused. But with adaptation being so important, obviously. Our survival hinges on us understanding climate change better. But Donald Trump's administration isn't just undoing what little progress we've made with regard to climate change, but he's also making sure that we operate in the dark because according to Science Magazine, Trump just killed NASA's carbon monitoring program, which is now more important than ever since we've now passed the terrifyingly high threshold of 410 parts per million. They report, you can't manage what you don't measure. The adage is especially relevant for climate warming greenhouse gases, which are crucial to manage and challenging to measure. In recent years though, satellite and aircraft instruments have begun monitoring carbon dioxide and methane remotely and NASA's carbon monitoring system, CMS, a 10 million a year research line has helped stitch together observations of sources and sinks into high resolution models of the planet's flows of carbon. Now, President Donald Trump's administration has quietly killed the CMS, science has learned. The move jeopardizes plans to verify the national emission cuts agreed to in the Paris Climate Accords, says Kelly Sims Gallagher, director of Tufts University's Center for International Environmental and Resource Policy in Medford, Massachusetts. If you cannot measure emissions reductions, you cannot be confident that countries are adhering to the agreement, she says. Canceling the CMS is a grave mistake, she adds. The White House has mounted a broad attack on climate science, repeatedly proposing cuts to NASA's Earth science budget, including the CMS, and cancellations of climate missions such as the Orbiting Carbon Observatory 3. Although Congress fended off the budget and mission cuts, a spending deal signed in March made no mention of the CMS. That allowed the administration's move to take effect, says Steve Cole, a NASA spokesperson in Washington, D.C., Cole says existing grants will be allowed to finish out, but no new research will be supported. The agency declined to provide a reason for the cancellation beyond budget constraints and higher priorities within the science budget, but the CMS is an obvious target for the Trump administration because of its association with climate treaties and its work to help foreign nations understand their emissions, says Phil Duffy president of the Woods Hole Research Center in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and unlike the satellites that provide the data, the research line had no private contractor to lobby for it. So this is insane. At a time when we should all be worrying, when governments especially should be worrying about climate change more so than ever, he's choosing to cut off a $10 million carbon monitoring system. And in the scheme of government spending that's that's chump change that's nothing we spend 700 billion dollars on the military so i think that we can spare a mere 10 million for something that's needed and the problem is that this isn't just stopping the united states from monitoring carbon This is what other countries relied on as well. And Donald Trump is stopping that. He's making sure no one else in the world can rely on NASA's carbon monitoring system. And in total, there are 65 projects that this program helps with. So it helps us understand the carbon dioxide levels in forests. Also, it lets us know how much carbon dioxide is in tropical forests. It tracks CO2 levels, um in certain areas, specifically attract CO2 levels in the Mississippi River. Um, It strings together data to give us a broader picture of greenhouse gas emissions and as a result helps us learn how to reduce them. But Donald Trump is now making sure that we operate in the dark, that scientists have less knowledge and therefore less tools at their disposal to tackle climate change. The rest of the world is probably looking at this and wondering how a right-wing extremist party like the Republicans were able to win even though they deny anthropogenic climate change. Look, think about this. This is one of the many issues that puts Republicans at odds with other conservative parties around the world. Let's just compare, we'll say the UK Conservative Party. Do you think that they deny anthropogenic climate change like Republicans do? They don't. They probably wouldn't get elected if they did. Everyone else in the world... No matter how conservative they are, they don't deny climate change to the extent that Republicans do, and Donald Trump does, our own president does. This isn't just embarrassing anymore, it's stupidly dangerous. Donald Trump and the Republican Party's hubris is literally killing the planet. But the reason why they're doing this and pursuing this insane agenda. It's because they take money from the fossil fuel industry. It's all about cash. Donald Trump appointed Rex Tillerson, the former CEO of ExxonMobil, to be his Secretary of State. So to say that climate change is not a concern of his, it'd be the understatement of the century. In fact, he denies climate change. He said it's a Chinese hoax. So we've run out of time. We're past the climate tipping point. And there's no sense of urgency, even in the Democratic Party, to act, let alone the Republican Party. And what little progress we make, it's undone immediately by a Republican president like Donald Trump. So it's just, it feels like the situation is hopeless. And before, we came together to solve a crisis that threatened humanity. The hole in the ozone layer with the Montreal Protocol. So we did it before. It's possible for the world to come together and come up with a solution to environmental catastrophes. We've seen it happen countless times. But this time, this may be what ultimately ruins the planet and makes it uninhabitable for humanity. It's not going to happen in a couple of decades. But centuries down the line, future generations are going to be so irate at our inaction with regard to, to climate change. Now, there is some hope, because according to the article, they report that a House spending panel actually approved an amendment that may actually restore funding to NASA's carbon monitoring program, but that's yet to be seen. So we'll cross our fingers and hope that, you know, funding for this program is restored, but even if it is restored, it still doesn't solve the bigger issue, which is that we're incapable of acting because we have one party in this country that rejects the idea that anthropogenic climate change is even a thing and the other party well they admit that climate change is real and it's happening and it's an issue but they're showing no real urgency when they talk about needing to act it's scary this is really terrifying Ajit Pai hasn't been having the best week because, as you all know, the Senate voted in a 52 to 47 vote to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. And he quickly released a statement thereafter saying, it's disappointing that Senate Democrats forced this resolution through by a narrow margin. But ultimately, I'm confident that their effort to reinstate heavy-handed government regulation of the internet will fail. Now, personally, I'm just surprised that he didn't use the phrase bipartisan light touch approach but you know (laughs) nonetheless he's still disappointed but believe it or not that probably wasn't the worst part of Ajit Pai's week because he was recently looped into a major corruption scandal involving AT&T and Donald Trump's attorney Michael Cohen so as Carl Bode of DSL reports writes Last week, AT&T apologized for its serious misjudgment in hiring U.S. President Donald Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, to provide insights into how the new administration would handle issues like net neutrality and AT&T's proposed merger with Time Warner Cable. Ultimately, the $600,000 AT&T paid Cohen for said insights became such a scandal, the company was forced to fire its top policy and lobbying man, Bob Quinn, despite the fact that such behavior is arguably routine at the Dallas-based telecom giant. So now the question is, where exactly does Ajit Pai come into play here? Why... Is he caught up in this story now? Well, as Carl Bode continues to explain, new scheduling documents obtained through FOIA by Corruption Watchdog American Oversight show the chairman met with top AT&T executives at a private dinner in Barcelona a month after the company began paying Cohen. One of the AT&T executives at that meeting was a top AT&T policy and lobbying executive, Bob Quinn, who orchestrated the payments to Cohen and was fired by AT&T, for what the company now acknowledges was, quote, a mistake. A private dinner between Chairman Pai and an at and executive who hired Michael Cohen to influence the president doesn't reflect well on the impartiality of the FCC, said American Oversight Director Austin Averes in a statement. Pai should disclose exactly what was discussed at the dinner and who organized the meeting. Did Michael Cohen set up a dinner where at and executives tried to sway a member of the president's administration on policy that affects the company? We can't know for sure until Pi tells the whole story, the group proclaimed. The FCC has some serious explaining to do. Given that Pi is arguably ultra-cozy with the industry he's supposed to be holding accountable, it's entirely possible that meeting would have happened anyway. But the group still believes that the company and Ajit Pai should be more transparent about the meeting, especially given the laundry list of favors from gutting net neutrality to killing consumer privacy protections that have rained down upon AT&T since Trump picked Pai to head the agency. So this is now corruption scandal number 1,257, I think, for Ajit Pai. I've lost count at this point. He has done so many things to raise suspicion. He's been caught up in so many corruption scandals. In the short time that he's been the chairman of the FCC, I don't know how he hasn't resigned in shame. I mean, as an individual, it's almost as if he's masochistic at this point to remain in the FCC after how much shit he's getting, and rightfully so, because he constantly is doing things to show that he is too cozy with the industry he's supposed to be regulating, and here now, he's now looped up in a corruption scandal with Michael Cohen and at and I mean, it doesn't get... Bigger than this, folks. This is huge. Now, for those of you who don't remember all the ways in which Ajit Pai is corrupt, just to name a few. First and foremost, he is obstructing justice, literally, by refusing to comply with information requests that have been sent out by the New York Attorney General's office. Now, he may get a break because, as you all know, um, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman was forced to resign because he's a scumbag. But I mean, regardless of what Eric Schneiderman did, there will be a new attorney general that will most likely take over the lawsuit that Eric Schneiderman launched against the FCC. And this lawsuit was catalyzed by the fact that Ajit Pai refused to investigate comment fraud. They were asking just for basic information about the comments that were submitted on behalf of people without their knowledge, using their identities to file comments to the FCC, submit comments that stated that they support their repeal of net neutrality, and Ajit Pai said, no, we're not going to give you any information. So, the New York Attorney General's office is now suing him. That's one of the ways that he's clearly um, a very corrupt dude. Additionally, he is blocking the release of information of skits he made. With Verizon executives, with the conservative news outlet, the Daily Caller, why won't you even release the most benign, seemingly banal, innocuous details? I mean, is it really important that you safeguard those emails between you and the Verizon executive where you guys planned a stupid skit that was inconsequential? I mean, the only reason he'd really have to block that is if he has something bigger to hide. Perhaps his relationship with Verizon goes deeper then he wants us to believe. I mean, we already know that he's cozy with them because that's his former and probably future employer. So, of course, he is buddy-buddy with Verizon executives, but he won't release details about a skit that he made with them. And, I mean, that's not all. He gave a speech at Verizon's headquarters just days before he voted to repeal net neutrality. I mean, really, when it comes to corruption, Ajit Pai may be the poster boy in Washington, D.C. He has done everything to wear his corruption on his sleeve and doesn't care at all what anybody thinks about it. All he's doing is he is pursuing his agenda to deregulate the internet, strip away consumer protections, and kill net neutrality. And he's been very successful at doing just that, even if we are challenging him. But I mean, he's been laser focused. He doesn't care about the corruption. He doesn't care about how it looks. He just knows that there's going to be a big payday one day if he continues his anti-consumer agenda. But here he is now, Caught up in a scandal with Michael Cohen and AT&T. <laughs> I think every other week I'm covering a new corruption scandal with Ajit Pai. He needs to just resign. If nobody in Congress is willing to pursue impeachment against him, he's got to resign. This, is, this level of corruption is despicable. I mean, people within Donald Trump's administration like Tom Price, were forced to resign. And now we have people like Ajit Pai and Scott Pruitt just flaunting their corruption in front of our faces. Well, this should not be tolerated because after Ajit Pai leaves, then his successor is going to be just as brazenly corrupt and we have to put a stop to it. We have to put pressure on him to resign and put pressure on elected officials to fire people like Ajit Pai when they are brazenly corrupt and too buddy-buddy with the industries they're supposed to be regulating. So last week, after the Israeli government murdered 60 Palestinians and injured more than 2,000, there were numerous right-wingers that rushed to Israel's defense. But surprisingly, or unsurprisingly really at this point, there were some so-called liberals who decided to also rationalize what Israel did. So, if you tuned into the latest episode of Real Time with Bill Maher, he brought on New York Times opinion piece writer Barry Weiss, who is an alleged liberal. And together, they basically explained why what Israel did in committing crimes against humanity really wasn't Israel's fault. In fact, we should blame Hamas. For what israel did and if we believe that israel did anything wrong then we're getting duped by hamas so basically they made the same argument that right-wingers made and that donald trump's administration made and again these are supposedly liberals so we'll go ahead and watch it and then i have quite a bit to say when we come back
4: i love you but the riots were not caused by the embassy move
2: no i said they were linked
4: they're not linked they
1: are no, they're not. Well, yes, okay, they, they were made I, much I, worse. The, the, these demonstrations were going on, but they exploded with the When Hamas attacked
4: embassy. Israel in yeah. 2008, when Hamas attacked Israel in 2012, and it attacked Israel in 2014, the embassy was in Tel Aviv all of those times. Okay? Oh, I, I, this was, no, this was an intentional, first of all, these protests had been going on for six weeks, and they intentionally right. moved up the day so that it would coincide with the opening of the embassy move so that we would all be disgusted and heartbroken when we saw this horrible split screen of Ivanka Trump looking like she was at a country club next right. to poor desperate people dying I, in Gaza. I agree
1: with you. They planned that. Absolutely.
4: Right. And I'm just saying let's not fall for a trap that is being set by a, a theocratic I, authoritarian I'm, group that is sending no, I'm not women falling, and children. I don't think I'm falling for a trap. Shield. I I, agree.
1: I couldn't agree more with all of that. What I'm saying is that There is this idea, and I would call it the soft bigotry of low expectations. I've said that before when people booed me on this subject, but I think they're the bigots when they just assume that if something goes on in this part of the world, as you said, there's going to be riots, and you can't organize your foreign policy around, geez, what what is Mohammed Atta going to do?
4: It kills me that Trump and the Republican Party are turning Israel, which should be a progressive issue, into a right-wing one. And I think it's that outrageous. Happened a while it's ago. That happened before. Yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, it's now not one single Democratic you know, person
1: I, 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 showed Israel, up Israel. Yeah, Israel did that under Obama, went to war with Obama and the Democrats. If anyone turned Israel into a right wing issue over the last eight, eight nine years, it was. But the, the hypocrisy of people who, who have this position and like, where would you rather live if you're in the Middle East? In Gaza? Right. There's under
4: not
2: Sharia be a, law or Tel Aviv. It's or,
1: not your values yeah. that they're defending. Right
2: yeah i mean i really shouldn't have to talk about this clip because i think it speaks for itself you have self-proclaimed liberals trying to rationalize the murder of innocent human beings unbelievable now i want to get to what barry weiss said she states hamas moved up the dates So their protest would, quote, coincide with the embassy move, so we would all be disgusted and heartbroken when we saw this horrible split screen of Ivanka Trump looking like she was at a country club next to poor, desperate people dying in Gaza. Let's not fall for a trap that is being set by a theocratic authoritarian group that is sending women and children to be human shields. So think about how inherently dumb that statement is. She's essentially implying here that what Hamas did was they tried to dupe Israel into killing them so that way there would be this violent clash. So you'd see this juxtaposition of Ivanka Trump opening up the embassy and people dying. So let me ask you this, if if Hamas was actively trying to dupe Israel into killing innocent women and children, why on earth would Israel fall for what Hamas has apparently done multiple times now, according to you. Shouldn't Israel be smarter and be aware of the tactics that Hamas is trying to execute in order to get their political message across? I mean, why would Israel fall for the same trap over and over and over again? It makes no sense. At what point does Israel say, look, let's just not respond to provocations by Hamas, if that really is what they're trying to do. But the argument that we constantly hear is that, well, you know, the IDF had no choice but to murder innocent Palestinians because they were throwing rocks at them and they were flying arson kites towards the border and they were trying to injure members of the IDF. But ask yourself this, how is Israel's response not unnecessarily hostile when you see the number of Palestinians injured and killed Compared to the number of Israelis killed and injured, there were zero. So again, clearly, if you think that Hamas is so calculative and smart to where they're able to dupe Israel into murdering innocent Palestinians in order to suit their agenda, then why would Israel fall for it? You see, this narrative makes absolutely no sense Because it's idiotic. To these individuals, Israel is right no matter what. And if you dare to question their tactics, if you dare to question the right-wing government of Israel currently being run by a war criminal who should be in prison right now, then you're anti-Semitic. It's absurd. And then the next thing that Barry Weiss said nearly made my head pop off my body and explode. I mean, it it was that insane. She states, it kills me that Trump and the Republicans are turning Israel, which should be a progressive issue, into a right-wing one really now? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. I think that Adam Johnson uh, affair had the best response on Twitter. He said, maybe you should connect the fucking dots. Why would progressives defend a right-wing extremist government who constantly murders innocent women and children? In fact, to go back through history. What side of South African apartheid were progressives on? We were against apartheid. Progressives are always on the side of human rights. So if you're wondering why progressives are lining up behind you, maybe you should look in the mirror and think about your philosophy with regard to Israel and Palestine. Maybe it's the case that Israel is the aggressor in this situation, even if that thought gives you cognitive dissonance, even if it's really unpleasant for you, because they are. They're the aggressor. They're the ones who are illegally occupying the Palestinian territories. And you don't have to take my word for it. That's what the UN says. The UN declared Israel's occupation illegal. And it is, in fact, an occupation. Think about this. In the event there was a foreign power that just came in and invaded California, do you think that America would respond politely? Do you think we would peacefully assemble? Of course not. Our military would attack them. So, I don't advocate for violence. But really, what they're saying, what people like Barry Weiss and Bill Maher are saying is that, really, Palestinians have to shut up and take whatever Israel does. If they use violence to respond to try to stop Israel's illegal occupation, they get lambasted for it. If they try to respond peacefully by protesting, then Israel kills them, and then they still get blamed for being killed when they protest. So, they want Palestinians to have no recourse whatsoever, and these people are just... They're grotesque. So Chuck Todd was recently interviewing Bernie Sanders and in said interview, he asked Bernie about the recent Santa Fe shooting. Now, this interview was really weird because Chuck Todd decided to randomly start aggressively challenging Bernie Sanders for seemingly no reason. So I'll show you the clip and then I think you'll quickly realize what I'm talking about here.
0: I want to move to the tragedy from Friday because... There was a, a, a young high school student who, who said something that really, I think, touched a lot of people. Here's um, one of the survivors, Paige Curry. Take a listen, Senator.
4: It's been happening everywhere. I felt, I've always kind of felt like eventually it was going to happen here, too. So I don't know. I wasn't surprised. I was just scared.
0: What does it say that we have high school students that, oh, yeah, I expected this.
3: How would we get it here? Is- Chuck, it is unspeakable. It, it really is. To see the kids all over this country who go to a place where they should feel safe, where they can focus on learning, you know, are now worried about the things we saw in Texas or in Florida a, a few months Have ago. Have you guys it done enough? unspeakable. Have you guys done enough in the Senate? Of course not. Of course not. But it's like every other issue. The American people are united overwhelmingly, gun owners, non-gun owners, on common sense gun safety legislation, expand background checks, do away with the gun show. Then why, ha- uh, if loophole. they are, how can this stuff does pass? It's a three-letter word. It's the NRA, and it's Trump and the Republicans who don't have the guts to stand up to these people, and that's pretty pathetic. And what you are seeing in general, it's not just the NRA. It's tax reform where you give huge tax breaks to billionaires, where Republicans want to throw 32 million people off of health care. you got a Congress dominated by a handful of billionaires and the NRA and other right-wing All right wing organizations. And that is enormously unfair to the children of this country, kids in those high schools I, and the American people in I, general. I, there
0: was a time you weren't so tough in the NRA back in the 90s. Do you believe they've changed or you've changed?
3: First of all, in 1988, I probably lost an election because I called for the ban on right. assault weapons in a state that had no gun control. But the NRA, frankly, which once was, believe it or not, a gun safety organization teaching kids how to use guns safely, has moved to be part of uh, a, a right. become a, a right wing political organization far beyond guns as a matter of fact
2: so yeah that was a really strange interview and i'll tell you why i think chuck todd behaved in the way he did in a moment here but i want to get to what he said here so he interjected interrupted bernie sanders and said have you guys done enough now i get it in theory people who are in the news are supposed to hold people in power accountable you want to hold their feet to the fire but you're asking this and lumping bernie sanders in with lawmakers who don't want to do anything because they're corrupt because they have taken thousands upon thousands of dollars from the nra some have taken over a million dollars from the nra and you're basically lumping bernie sanders in with that group just so that way you can say oh well i challenged someone in power well that i mean (laughs) if you're not challenging the right people on the right issues then you're still not doing your job, no matter how aggressive you want to be. And he also stated, how come this stuff doesn't ever pass? Really? It's because of corruption, an issue that the mainstream media avoids like the plague, because these same multinational corporations and billionaires that fund the politicians also happen to pay for advertising on your network, Chuck Todd, hence why you don't talk about corruption. So it's a conflict of interest. So maybe you should ask yourself the same question. Why doesn't this get passed? Maybe it's because we don't shine a light on the corruption. Maybe it's because, you know, um, we're not talking about it. So the American people aren't informed about the corrosive influence money has on politics. Moneyed interests are blocking it from passing. And it's not just the issue of gun reform. It's virtually every single issue. Now, here's where the interview takes a turn for the weird He asked Bernie Sanders, there was a time you weren't so tough on the NRA back in the 90s. Do you believe they've changed or you've changed? Now, you may wonder, what the hell is Chuck Todd talking about? And my guess is that he was referencing an article published in the Washington Post back in 2015 titled, How the National Rifle Association helped get Bernie Sanders elected. Now, in this article, it discusses how the NRA actually decided to endorse Bernie Sanders over a Republican incumbent named Peter Smith in one particular race, and they endorsed Bernie over Smith because they wanted to punish Smith for flip-flopping on an assault weapons ban. So he was previously against an assault weapons ban, but he changed his mind, which then prompted the NRA to endorse Bernie Sanders specifically to give Smith the finger. And just a few years prior, Bernie actually came out swinging in favor of a ban on assault weapons. And as he stated here in this interview, he arguably lost that election, because of his decision to support an assault weapons ban. But getting back to the race between Bernie and Smith, their endorsement of Bernie Sanders was purely political. They didn't like Bernie Sanders because of what he said with regard to gun reform. They endorsed Bernie Sanders to punish the Republican. But yet, in spite of that inconvenient fact, news pundits like Joy Reid and now Chuck Todd tried to imply that Bernie Sanders is somehow soft on the NRA. (laughs) so i mean this whole exchange was interesting and really it was out of the norm for chuck todd i think i mean this is unorthodox for him usually he takes it easy on his guests and because as he stated previously we all sit there because we all know the first time we bark is the last time they do the show you say something and sometimes it is the last time they will ever come on your show so there is that balance Now, he said this back in 2014 in a conversation he had with Louis Black, so since he knows that Bernie Sanders desperately wants to promote progressive policy ideas no matter how hard Chuck Todd challenges him, Chuck Todd probably thought that this was a good opportunity to pretend to be a good journalist and push back against what Bernie Sanders was saying, even if It really wasn't warranted, but, I mean, he thought that it would make him look more credible. I mean, we don't want you to just push back against people in power because that's what's entailed with your job as a journalist. We want you to hold them accountable when it's warranted and where it's actually applicable. But with that being said, and really this should go without saying, I'm not against Bernie Sanders being challenged because I like Bernie Sanders. Actually, AJ Plus did a fantastic job challenging Bernie Sanders on the issue of Israel-Palestine, and they exposed a lot of weaknesses Bernie Sanders has on this issue. Furthermore, Jake Tapper just last week actually did a great job challenging Bernie to explain why he supported John Brennan in 2013 but won't support Gina Haspel when they're pretty comparable i mean i think gina haspel is worse but john brennan is also an individual who was complicit with torture during the bush years so i'm not against bernie sanders being challenged challenging bernie sanders on this particular issue makes no sense because bernie sanders is already on the side of doing something of taking action so you just make yourself look stupid you don't make yourself look more credible chuck because it looks like you're unwilling to take yes for an answer. Bernie Sanders is saying, look, we should do something. We need universal background checks. We need X, Y, and Z. And you're saying, but, well, why won't you get this done? Why won't you get this done? He's telling you he wants to get this done. So, I mean, you just look foolish. So, this was a really weird exchange. And just, really, Chuck Todd was sh- trying to be opportunistic here in challenging Bernie because he just wanted to make himself look good. So, this was really stupid, and I think that... It, really makes Chuck Todd look worse and doesn't make Bernie Sanders look bad. It reflects more poorly on you, Chuck. Last week was a phenomenal week for progressives because we had a number of victories across the country. So now, several progressive Democrats will face off against a Republican in November, and that includes individuals like John Fetterman, like Kara Eastman. So they're winning these primaries against establishment Democrats, and now what are some Democrats doing? Well, they're saying, good job, progressives, now you're going to lose to a Republican because you're just too liberal to beat a right winger. But in an interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, Bernie Sanders explained why that's not actually true. In fact, the opposite is true.
0: So let me ask you to respond to the concern now that you've heard from National Democrats. Um, and I know technically your organization didn't back uh, Ms. Eastman in, in Nebraska, but many other progressives did. Uh, and they're now They're not writing the race off, but they are now backing off on their hopes of it. They think, oh, she's not electable enough. What do you say to national Democrats who say, you know what, be careful of this, of nominating folks that are too progressive?
3: Uh, I think that they are wrong, and I think they are misreading where the American people are at. You know, uh, Chuck, many of the issues that I campaigned on two years ago, uh, issues like Medicare for all, raising the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour are uh, taking on the pharmaceutical industry, making public colleges and universities tuition-free, uh, legalizing marijuana. A few years ago, those were seen as radical, uh, fringy ideas. Well, you know what? In every instance, those ideas are now supported by the American people, by a majority of the American people, overwhelming percentage of Democrats. So I think what candidates all over the country are now beginning to understand is that it is more important to reach out to the people in your community, working people, the middle-class, lower-income people, than rather than just worry about what wealthy campaign contributors want you to say. So I think candidates who run on a progressive agenda, which demands that we take on the billionaire class, that we end the movement to an oligarchy in this country, that we fight for the rights of working people, I think that's not only good public policy, I think that's good politics, and I think many of those candidates will win. because you're going to see do you, voter turnout go up and yeah. a level of excitement uh, that conservative Democrats do don't you, raise. Do you buy the idea that there is such thing
0: as electability, that that should be part of a primary argument?
3: Well, sure, we all want to win. The question is, what constitutes electi- uh, electability? Uh, four years ago, as you will recall, Republicans won a landslide victory all across this country. And the reason was, primarily, that we had the lowest voter turnout since World War II. Some 37% of the American people voted. Because establishment Democrats don't generate excitement. And I think when you have progressive candidates, and we have seen this now for the last year, last year and a half, since Trump has been elected, we have seen progressive candidates seeing voter turnout go up. Because the people in their communities know that it's time to stand up and fight. That's what they want to see. So the goal of the Democrats, it seems to me, in 2018 has got to be significantly raising voter turnout. And you do that by talking about the issues that working families care about.
2: So essentially what Bernie Sanders is arguing here is that (laughs) Democrats have to be able to win over their own base. We constantly see them putting this emphasis on the need to win over moderates. But as they try to move towards the center and the right, they are abandoning their liberal voting base. They're moving too far to the right, and they are making themselves unappealing to normal Americans who support left-leaning policies, like Medicare for All, like raising the minimum wage and attaching that to inflation, like legalizing recreational marijuana. I mean, you can't just continue to chase moderates and expect your own base to still remain loyal to you. So what Bernie Sanders is saying here is that with these progressives facing off against Republicans, well, this is actually good. Because they are going to galvanize the Democratic Party's voting base and get them to come out and vote. I mean, you can't win over moderates if you can't even win over your own base. So to get to Bernie Sanders' specific quote, he says, It is more important to reach out to people in your community, working people, the middle class, lower income people, rather than just worry about what wealthy campaign contributors want you to say. Now, he states that this is important because it facilitates an increase in voter turnout and a level of excitement that you don't see with conservative Democrats. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There were a number of Jill Stein voters, I think actually a pretty large percentage, I don't know it off the top of my head, that... Claim they would have just stayed home had Jill Stein not been an option, meaning Hillary Clinton was not a sufficiently liberal person that liberals like myself and Jill Stein voters didn't want to come out and support her. But if you have someone who actually is really distinguishing themselves as a true progressive, if they're saying, I'm not like the Republican, I'm not just marginally better than the Republican, well, of course, that's exciting because people are hurting currently. People can barely put food on their table. And this incrementalist approach that Democrats just refuse to move away from, it's not helping them win elections. And again, I shouldn't be having to talk about why running to the middle or the right is a failed strategy because we saw how this played out over the last 10 years. They lost more than a thousand seats in state legislatures. So how can you still continue to defend this approach? I mean, they still do defend this approach. If you run a progressive, you have a better chance of winning. Will you win every single race? No. But will you increase the odds that you will win against the Republican? Yes, absolutely. I think that's just common sense because if you put up a liberal candidate, liberal voters will be more inclined to vote for that individual. And Bernie states here, Republicans won big in 2014 because we had the lowest voter turnout since World War II saying it was because, quote, establishment Democrats don't generate excitement. Now, let's go back to 2014 for a moment. We had individuals like Alison Lundergan-Grimes running against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. She wouldn't even admit that she voted for Barack Obama. That's how centrist she uh, she was. Now, let me remind you, Barack Obama is obviously a centrist himself. So if you're so right-wing that you won't even admit that you voted— For the party's last nominee, who's a centrist Democrat, actually a conservative Democrat in many instances, why would you think you even have a chance? And of course, guess what happened? Mitch McConnell crushed her. But when you look to states like Oregon, Jeff Merkley was running against a coke backed Republican named Monica Webby. What did he do? Did he run to the center and try to win over Republican voters who were more inclined to support Webby? No, he ran as a progressive. He teamed up with Elizabeth Warren and they did uh, fundraisers together, progressive small dollar fundraisers. So you have to understand that if you keep doing the same failed strategy over and over and over again, it's not going to work. Sure, you may have some victories here and there, but this will not be a long term strategy. And the reason why I say that is because when you look at centrist Democrats, I mean, for example, 33... House Democrats aligned with Republicans to deregulate Wall Street. And this includes someone from Oregon, Kurt Schrader, someone who should be a progressive, who's from a dark blue state, voted to deregulate Wall Street. Well, guess what happens? If you see how these moderate Democrats conduct themselves in Congress, well, the voter thinks, why would I come out and support that? Voting is a chore. You have to register. You have to be there by a certain day, by a certain time. It's a chore. It's a hassle. So why would anyone want to bear the cost of voting if they don't believe they're getting a good payoff from voting? So this is something that Democrats have got to get through their heads if they want to defeat Republicans, because certainly as a progressive, I want Democrats to defeat Republicans. They may not be a great party, but they're obviously objectively better than Republicans, and I'd rather try to get democrats to get on board with progressive policies than fight against you know what republicans are doing to basically ruin the country so they've got they've got to understand that what they've been doing their strategy has just been a failure and they have to listen to bernie sanders and stop being afraid to be bold because that's what this is they don't want to be bold they don't want to embrace progressivism and populism but if they did they would be unstoppable Hillary Clinton is an individual that embodies everything that is wrong with the Democratic Party. Not only is she corrupt and pretentious, but she doesn't stand for anything she purports to stand for. And this week, really, again, she showed to us that she doesn't stand up for the values she claims to stand up for, because when she was giving a speech to the class of 2018 at Yale, well, um... She made another statement about democracy, and I'll tell you why she doesn't care as much about democracy um, as she says she does here.
4: I still think about the 2016 election. I still regret the mistakes I made. I still think, though, that understanding what happened in such a weird and wild election in American history will help us defend our democracy in the future. Whether you're right, left, center, Republican, Democrat, independent, vegetarian, whatever. (laughs) We all have a stake in that. So today, as a person, I'm okay, but as an American, I'm concerned. Now I see, looking out at you, that you are following the tradition of over-the-top hats. So I brought a hat too. A Russian hat. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that made me cringe so hard it literally sent shutters down my spine i kid you not <laughs> no, nobody can make me cringe as hard as hillary clinton can uh she has a unique talent there now she is claiming here to care about the sanctity of democracy, and I find that hilarious because she literally perpetrated one of the biggest frauds our country has ever seen by rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders in 2016. And she also hasn't spoken about how the ballots were illegally destroyed in the race between Tim Canova and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And she remains silent as the DNC and the DCCC continues to stack the deck against progressive candidates across the country. So if you truly care about democracy then why wouldn't you call out these violations of democracy i mean if you have a lot of power and influence within your own party if they really take what you say at face value and they respect you wouldn't you put your desire to protect democracy at use by telling the democratic party establishment that they should do more to reinforce our trust in them after they just squandered it and they continue to do so? I mean, I don't I don't really understand how you can claim to care about democracy, but ignore everything the Democratic Party continues to do to undermine that value. Superdelegates, closed primaries. Hillary, you literally took control of the DNC before you won the nomination. You don't care about democracy, Hillary. But the reason why I'm talking about this is because other Democrats don't care about democracy as well. Tom Perez was parading around recently, a couple of weeks ago, talking about... His desire to protect democracy, but he hasn't called out any of these things. He claims that he's suing uh, WikiLeaks and Donald Trump and Russia for meddling in the 2016 election but he's not saying anything about how the democratic party establishment is meddling in elections across the country between progressives and establishment democrats also another issue democrats have that hillary clinton embodies is evident in this report from the hill hillary clinton will endorse new york governor andrew cuomo for re-election in the democratic primary according to a report in the new york times a decision likely to anger liberals backing actress cynthia nixon's progressive campaign now i can assure you that this Angers absolutely no one on the progressive left. In fact, I think that your endorsement of Andrew Cuomo is actually beneficial for Cynthia Nixon because it shows just how big of an establishment insider Andrew Cuomo is, as if anyone needed more evidence of that. But if you were to endorse Cynthia Nixon, that would hurt her because it would make it seem as though she is the one that's the establishment insider, but you kind of make it even more clear that she's the progressive we should be watching in this race, we should be voting for and supporting. But the problem inherent with her endorsement of Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon, well, I'll let Madeleine Albright explain why it's a problem.
4: Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other.
2: (laughs) Ah, that's right. So this is how weaponizing identity politics has come back to bite Democrats in the ass. They like to talk the talk and they like to claim that they care about getting women elected and people of color elected, but when push comes to shove, they always side with the establishment candidate. And I'm not suggesting that you should back someone just based on their identity, but this is what they imply is a way that we should be voting. And when we don't vote the way that they want us to vote, if there is an opportunity to smear us, then they will take that opportunity. In fact, this is what they did against Keith Ellison when he was running against... Tom Perez, to be the next DNC chair. Well, how do they smear him? They said he was anti-Semitic because of his support for the Palestinian people. The same tactic was used to gin up excitement for the Californian Democratic Party chairman, Eric Bauman, who's openly gay, and they're using that to distract you from the fact that Kimberly Ellis was cheated. So establishment Democrats do this all the time, and Hillary Clinton is clearly showing that she's no exception. They weaponize identity politics as a means of smearing progressives, but they never adhere to the same principles they espouse. So, Hillary Clinton is showing how Democrats are hypocritical here with her endorsement of Andrew Cuomo. But here's another thing that Hillary Clinton is doing that establishment Democrats do as well. So, they know that progressive policies are incredibly popular. So, what have they done? They've co opted the language that progressives use to talk about progressive policies while simultaneously rejecting all of those policies unequivocally. Case in point Tom Perez always talks about how health care is a right, but then he'll only claim that guaranteeing actual- Access to healthcare is the party's ultimate goal, not guaranteeing healthcare itself. And now Hillary Clinton is doing the same sort of thing where she steals the rhetoric that progressives use. And what's Hillary Clinton now saying? We are going to take back the country we love. But let me ask you this, Hillary, who are you taking the country back from? Specifically because you're part of the elite class that helped ruin the country. Your ilk, that is corporate establishment Democrats, they're still in control of the DNC, of the Democratic Party. Corporate Democrats are still in leadership position, so who are you taking the country back from specifically? Well, as Mary Alice Park explains former Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton acknowledged Friday that Democratic candidates around the country still face basic questions about what they stand for and which policies their party supports. Speaking at a Democratic Women's Leadership Forum in Washington, D.C., Clinton urged party leaders to return to the basics and lay out the party's values for voters. Fair wages, the absolute promise of universal health care, public school funding, gun safety reform, and equal pay were at the top of the former First Lady's agenda items that she thought should stay central to the Democratic Party's platform. Okay, so she's not even talking about taking the country back from Republicans, which is what you might have suspected from that headline. She's saying that we need to advocate for universal healthcare now all of a sudden. But what happened to this?
4: Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass.
2: So do you see the problem? We will never know what Democrats stand for because they will say Anything in order to get elected. And I get it, that's what politicians are supposed to do because they care about winning. They only care about their electoral prospects. But if you truly care about winning, then you have to be at least somewhat consistent so we take you seriously when you say you stand for something. But Hillary Clinton is really a microcosm of a broader issue facing the Democratic Party. They say one thing when really they mean another. And can you guess who introduced Hillary Clinton at this event? Of course, it was DNC Chairman Tom Perez. So in short, Democrats just can't quit the Clintons. But they should, because Hillary Clinton embodies everything voters dislike about the Democratic Party. So if they truly want to win, and I'm not sure that they do want to win, I really am not, just based on their actions. But if they truly want to win, they should abandon Clintonism and actually opt for progressivism, populism, support policies that a majority of the American people agree with. Medicare for all, tuition-free public colleges and universities. Hell, do something really bold. Come out and say unequivocally, if you elect Democrats, we will cancel student loan debt. Do you know how many millennials would come out and vote for Democrats if you did that? So, they have to leave behind Clintonism, but see, Hillary Clinton is emblematic of the Democratic Party's biggest issues. She doesn't stand for anything, she says one thing and does another, she doesn't adhere to the principles and the uh, philosophy that she espouses herself, and it's problematic, it's hurting them. They need to stop, they need to embrace progressivism. That's all I got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far in the episode, thank you so much. And also, as usual, I can't end without another shout out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors because you guys are absolutely amazing. So if you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can check out humanistreport.com slash support or patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. I will see you all next week. Take care.